Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to the first episode of Talking with Traders for uh, this year. And I'm delighted to welcome back a previous guest of ours from the last season of Talking with Traders, and that's Anthony Clark from Small Talk Daily Research. Anthony, welcome back. Yeah, hi, Garth. It's nice to be here. And I'm glad we're recording this because I'm sitting here in sunny Cape Town uh, in, uh, in a T-shirt and shorts. I know. And I could see that on the camera, which obviously the viewers or the listeners to this podcast won't be able to see, of course. I, on the other hand, I'm sitting here in the UK in a K-way jacket freezing uh, because it's starting to become quite chilly here and quite wintry here in the UK. So I am rather envious of you and your T-shirt there in the nice sunny Cape Town weather. But without uh, going on too much about that kind of thing, Anthony, let's get back into a little bit from where we left off our conversation last time, I suppose. Um, You left us with a a number of ideas around small cap stocks and mid cap stocks, which is your area of of focus, of course. And you identified a couple of really nice, interesting, juicy opportunities in that podcast. It's now been about a year since we last spoke. And uh, a lot of what you were talking about then has actually come to fruition very nicely. There's been some great value unlock in a lot of the small and mid caps shares uh, on the JSE. So I presume it's been a pretty good year for you since we spoke last time. Yeah, hi, Garth. Yeah, it's been a fantastic year regarding the small to mid cap space. Um, As of the close of last week, I think the small cap sector uh, year to date was up about 61%, the mid cap sector about 21%, whereas the, the big Aussie 40 and the all share index is up less than 10% showing you how much value there was in the small to mid cap universe uh, in uh, in this country. And if you could identify the right counters, which had the uh, correct metrics and uh, and positioning, uh, you could have made a great deal of money in the last uh, 12 months. And I still don't think um, the run has finished. The easy money has been made. The turn in the market actually occurred in the small cap market. It was June, July last year. And then the mid cap market started playing catch up in about uh, November. So since then, we've gone to the races. Uh, many stocks have, uh, have done extremely well. Uh, and many of the, uh, uh, again, the narratives that I gave a year ago regarding uh, significantly undervalued stocks in the universe and the potential for buyouts have actually transpired. And I don't think much has changed in the last 12 months. I'm still seeing great value. And I'm still seeing a potential next year for, for more delistings. Uh, on a personal scenario, you know I, I conduct uh, myself uh, independently. Uh, I have a, a core retinue of, of supporters, and uh, I'd say that they've been very, uh, very uh, supportive so far this year in the works that I do. And uh, even though I'm Welsh by birth, I'd say the luck of the Irish has been with me for the best part of 2021 so far. 
<laughs> yeah, good. And I know we we spoke about your wealth, uh, your Welsh <laughs> heritage in the, in the last podcast. And since we spoke, I've actually been to Wales. Uh, we did a family holiday there in August. And uh, what a beautiful country it is. But I also got to appreciate what you mentioned in your previous podcast with me that it, it's a it's a quite a poor country. And I noticed that uh, driving around Wales and seeing. Uh, seeing all of that. So that's just a side note, but um, it's very interesting to, to, to have seen that. Um, Anthony, in terms of the, the, the year that's gone past, I mean, you've mentioned some of the numbers, the, 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 the phenomenal performance of the small cap and, and the, to a slightly lesser extent in the mid cap space. Um, what have been the best performers for you over the past year? Um, again, they're all very stock specific and mm. a lot of the work that I do I'm not your classically trained analyst. I'm not an accountant by training. I don't have a CFA. All I have is a, is a depth of experience from working in the market for about 30 years and uh, investing for myself and having a passion since I was 14 years old. So I'm basically, I'm 54 years old this coming Thursday. So I've been now investing in the market for myself for 40 years. And you bring all of that context uh, into the work that I do in a small to mid cap space. And it's predominantly about trying to find the, the next hot ticket and a lot of it is about, is about relationships and then the, the tiny tidbits of information that you pick up along the way, which I call the mosaic theory, which is quite common to uh, many of your listeners. And you start knitting together stories. And when that story gets to a sufficient size of cloth, you then cut a, a great narrative. So during the course of this year, let me give you some examples. Um, again, the real uh, bargains were picked up uh, in, the po- in the post-COVID crash of March, April, May 2020. Back then, for example, I was recommending that uh, uh, my clients and followers buy, as an example, Invicta Holdings, which got to a low of four rand and seven cents. As I checked this morning, it's sitting at 32. That's been a fantastic performer. A more recent example uh, is Renogen, which is a stock that I uh, only started covering formally uh, December 2020 and came out on the 14th of January with a buy at 12 rand. This morning, it's at 30 rand. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all it's all very stock specific. And the same with, for example, takeouts. Metrofile has been under cautionary since the beginning of time with a number of suitors looking to potentially snap at the company's heels. You would have bought that company in August 2020 for a Rand 30. Um, it's now trading at about three Rand. So it's, it's all it's all very stock specific regarding you just don't buy the index. You're looking at what is the underlying scenario of a company that you are interested in. And what could fundamentally change the market perception or sentiment regarding that stock, which would cause it to either rally very hard or perhaps on the flip side to weaken. And to give you an example of of a weakening stock, I've liked Afrimat for a long, long time. Mm. I've covered the company since listing in 2006 and had my first buy in the stock at 3 Rand 15. Uh, In early August, it got to a high of 61 Rand 60. Yeah. In fact, it's been the best performing share on the JSC by far over the last 10 years, even outperforming NASPERS. Mm, uh, 20 bagger. Don't follow Afrimat. Mm. So as, a little, as an example, I was writing in July about the iron ore market rolling over in China, which wasn't really garnering much attention because everybody was focused on the Chinese government bashing the tech stocks. So NASPERS was falling because of, uh, of, uh, of Tencent, Alibaba, Didi. Uh, they were all completely crashing. But in the same narrative, the rhetoric in China regarding air quality and pollution uh, was beginning to have an impact on the steel sector and the demand for iron ore. And at $215, I could see that that rhetoric perhaps would have an impact to the domestic 
iron ore companies like Afrimad and Kumba. And I came up with a negative statement in early August saying, watch this space. The sector is going to take a smack. Mm. And the iron ore price fell from $215 to $94 in less than a month. Uh, and the uh, Afrimad share price fell by over 20% and the Kumba share price by 40%. Yeah. So showing when you have to keep an eye on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the information on the ground, aside from the underlying narrative regarding the company itself. So there's some examples of some stories in the last 12 months that have, that have played out quite nicely. Mm, yeah, it's very interesting how you knit all of that together. And also, I mean, the, the, the listeners to this podcast must know that you, you, you're talking about this retrospectively, but yeah, I follow you very closely on Twitter and all of this is stuff that you did highlight at the time. So, you know, it's completely genuine. You certainly the, the comments you were making around iron ore and all of that were very much, uh, I mean, I took notice of that. So you, you were right on the money there. You made a point uh, a little while ago about takeouts and that's what I, something I want to focus on uh, for this next part of the discussion, because it seems there are quite a few takeouts on the go at the moment. Um, we've got distill, uh, what with the possible deal with Heineken, um, long for life is one that came out recently and there's speculation there about the possibility that Mr. Price might be looking at them. I don't know how, um, you know, accurate that is or not. Um, Imperial is also, uh, an acquisition target now. Um, so there are a couple of these out there in the market. I mean, those are just three that I've mentioned. There are others. It's, it's I guess, a part of that value unlock story in the small and mid-cap space that you talk about. Um, and, it's, and it's something you did mention that a lot of stocks are delisting and you see more delistings coming in the year ahead. So have you got some stocks on the radar that you think are possible takeout targets for the for the next say 12 to 24 months which we should be keeping an eye on if i if i had a crystal ball and could invest money for clients right now but the potential takeouts i'm sure i'd be a very wealthy man not mm. sitting here in a back bedroom in cape town the <laughs> sleeping dog underneath my desk but there's some very interesting permutations out there and at the end of the day uh, if you're an analyst of record who's, who's been in the market for as long as i have you, you start to see the signs that perhaps, again, the narrative on certain companies might be changing. And I, I love using examples, and I, I do this on my social media page, so that the, you know, the wider universe actually gets, as you say, to understand what I'm looking at and how I'm thinking. So it's not just, as you say, you know, Anthony Clark shooting a breeze and saying, look how wonderful I am. There's actually a lot of background work that goes on behind the scenes, which many of the, uh, the, uh, the, the readers and followers of my social media pages the work that I do in, in the financial press never get to see. And one that I've been actively discussing for the best part of, uh, uh, of a year, since November last year, has been Grinrod. Uh, the company has a net asset value north of 10 rand a share. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, been happily selling off um, subsidiary assets like its agricultural interests. Uh, some of its non-core assets have been, have been sold off, all to reduce debt. But uh, there's a really interesting scenario currently in play with Grinrod. And I've been talking about this for the best part of six weeks. And again, I've been alluding to it on my, on my social media page. We all know the trouble this country is in regarding the, um, um, the ports and railway network with transit and port net basically falling down. And many companies bemoaning the fact they can't export their products uh, to a hungry consumer base globally because they simply can't get the stuff on a wagon, uh, on the rails, to the ports. And then there's a, there's a, there's a delay of a port to get the product into international markets. And it's costing this country billions and billions of rands in lost revenue and lost taxation to the fiscus. Mm. Um, I've been working for the, on, uh, on the sidelines 
piecing together some information uh, regarding a possible private-public partnership that Transnet may be announcing uh, in the coming weeks to allow private operators to use its railway network for a fee to actually assist the large mining companies to ship their ferromanganese, their chromite ore, iron ore, coal, et cetera, et cetera, to the ports. Mm. Um, there's estimates that 50 billion rand of product is lying around, which simply can't be exported uh, because of the inefficiencies with the uh, underlying logistics system, uh, you know, inherent in Transnet and Portnet. In fact, uh, Togula Coal, the large coal company, came out last week saying they might be 17 million tons of coal short this year in exports purely because of the inefficiencies of the, of the state-owned system. Mm. Nothing here is new. We know that ESCOM is falling down. We know that SAA went basically belly up. Uh, yeah. Danel, you, you name any government SOE, is being badly run and is costing private enterprise in this country uh, an untold fortune in lost opportunity cost. So Grindelot, for an example, um, actually has locomotives in this country. It has wagons. It has expertise. If, as I expect, the government in due course starts to open up uh, the Transnet line for a fee to private operators to move goods by mining companies from point A to point B, let's say on the Port Elizabeth line to the coast to Kukka, or on the Session to Saldana line with iron ore. Someone like Grindrod could see significant upside as an efficient private logistics company with port operations to move goods to offshore markets. And we've seen the share price tick up over the last two weeks, possibly in anticipation of some news coming. Um, right. Given the net asset value of the company, uh, it's trading at about a 50% discount in net asset value. Yeah. Um, at some point, perhaps some private equity player may come in and start sniffing around, but they'd have to get the approval of Rembrandt, which owns 25%, and they've been very reluctant uh, to shake the tree too much because they've had bigger fish to fry with Mediclinic and RMB, amongst other things. But at some point, uh, Grimrod, with a market value of 3.5 billion rand, certainly is one where I believe has a, a very interesting dynamic ahead of it, either on continued unbundling of non-core assets and or its participation in private-public partnership with government in rail and ports. So at about five rand and some change, that stock to me continues to be worth at least seven rand fifty, and perhaps even higher uh, if the uh, evolution of PPPs in this country actually starts to transpire in the coming weeks and months. So there's one example for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Well, there you go, listeners. That's your your, your tip of the year. Go and and if you if you uh, believe that Anthony's forecasts and and the track record can continue, then you've got to be having a look at that certainly. You, you mentioned also Renogen a little while ago, Anthony, and I just want to find out a little bit more about that company as well. You mentioned that you've been focusing on it since December last year, and you put your first report out in January of this year on, on Renogen. Can you just give us a little bit more insight into that company? Because it's one that I do see being bandied about a little bit on Twitter quite a lot here. And I think for the retail investing public, it would probably be useful just to give them a little bit more insight into that business. Yeah, I'd say that uh, the, the retail market in Renogen, I'd probably say, are probably the most um, devout and fanatical I've ever come across. Um, anything that I tend to comment on on Renogen seems to be picked up immediately by what I would call the uh, the easy equities share nets type crowd, <laughs> uh, because there's an inherent interest in, in that company. Uh, and as a retrospective, I always like to give uh, uh, listeners uh, uh, a step back in history. Now, this company uh, listed in 2015 as a an exploration company looking at discovering um, natural gas uh, in the free state. Now, I'm not going to go into a boring uh, geology lesson for your listeners, but basically 
And as you know, in the free state, there's a significant quantity of gold around Volcom, Bloemfontein, et cetera, et cetera. And that's to do with the geology of the area going back for millennia, where mm. uranium and gold deposits were, you know, were, were laid down, you know, way before our time. One of the side effects of, of that radioactivity in the, in the bedrock is that the natural gas in the, in the, in the, in the, in the rock substrata gets converted over time into varying compounds, the largest being methane, which is then uh, extracted to, to form liquid natural gas, LNG. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that helium is produced as a, as a combination of chemical activity deep underneath the earth. Now, gas in the free state has been known about since the 1950s and 1960s. In fact, the first well was drilled in 1960s and was capped because at that point, uh, there was no real need for you know, low-cost green energy in this country because we were sitting on some of the world's largest uh, resources of coal. And no one really cared much in the 1950s and 1960s regarding you know, climate change and ESG and green credentials, how things have changed. So Renogen, realizing that this large deposit was there, got the exclusive license uh, to explore 187,000 hectares just outside of Velcom. And they've, they've drilled so far 18 wells, um, some actually producing, producing uh, liquid natural gas, which is basically methane, and significant quantities of helium. Now, why am I, why am I harping on about helium? Because helium in the last uh, decade has become a, a very interesting commodity. Now, we all know that helium, for example, you know, if, you, if you sniff it in, it gives you a high-pitched, squeaky voice, yeah. and you can, blow, you can blow party balloons up with it to make things lighter than air. That's yes. what most people know about helium. Mm. What they don't know in today's modern society is that helium is absolutely integral in pretty much every piece of modern technology that we use as a society. When you make uh, semiconductors, for example, uh, helium is actually used in a manufacturing process to keep components cool, given the high heat of the lasers used to etch uh, the silicon disks. If you go into hospital and have an MRI scan, the magnetic resonance chamber that you go into has to be cooled by liquid helium to actually enable the magnetic waves to pass through the system to give you the image. Uh, the rise in space technology uh, with SpaceX, with Elon Musk and uh, Blue Origin with Jeff Bezos, um, every single rocket launch, depending on the size of a rocket, uses between 9 and 11 tons of helium to cool and pressurize the underlying craft. And I'm, I shan't even talk about data centers being cooled uh, by liquid helium and, and it's being used to detect uh, leaks uh, in, uh, in welding uh, pipes, et cetera, et cetera, because it's non-flammable and it's non-lethal. So it won't explode, unlike many other gases. Right. And it isn't harmful uh, to humans like uh, nitrogen or, or, or carbon dioxide. So it's become into its own the last few years. The largest producers are Qatar, Russia and Algeria. Not exactly stable democracies. <laughs> so what yeah. Renogen thought, well, if they can explore this site in the free state, they may be able, to be able to come up with some viable quantities of liquid natural gas and methane. And let's just say they seem to have hit pay dirt with some of the largest concentrations of helium uh, on the planet at between 2 and 4%, where, for example, in Qatar, it's under 0.3%. So they've basically gone from an exploration phase to now a commercial activity where well, the taps will be turned on the production of liquid natural gas and helium at the end of this year. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I didn't know all of that about helium and it's, it's an incredible story that you've really summarized very, very nicely there, Anthony. So thank you. Thank you for that. Well, there's, there's way more to the story than that. That's just a basic background. 
The really interesting story happened, uh, you know, the share price has run from 15 rand 40 in the last uh, six weeks to 30 rand today. They've mm -hmm. launched a helium token. So it's basically like a Bitcoin for helium, which will enable the users to even take physical delivery of a quantity of helium or trade the <clears> token <throat> on, uh, on overseas exchanges. Uh, Purple Group under Easy Equities will actually administer that locally. What that does is it gives a daily value to helium, which is currently very difficult uh, to get a pricing mechanism on. It's trading at roughly $45 to $50 a kilogram. Mm. What this does for Energen is it potentially provides another source of funding for the capital needed to, to bring the second phase of a project online by 2024, 2025, where I estimate about 10 billion rand will need to be spent to bring the project online. The market was concerned that that would be funded by debt and equity issuances. This helium token um, could potentially be a very, very interesting mechanism to raise money to fund the expansion of Virginia phase two. And the first phase to raise $25 million or around 380 million rand is currently underway. And I think that's caused a great deal of excitement in the marketplace. And then what we've got today is the interim results were out, all very, um, you know, non plus because uh, it's still a loss-making company, but it actually indicated that they'll turn the taps on Virginia phase one by the end of the year. And then, and more importantly, the market is waiting for what's called the reserve and resource number. Now, anybody out there that uh, is wondering what I'm talking about, if you have anything in the ground, be it iron ore, coal, gold, gold, oil, gas, you have actual proven reserves, right. you have possible reserves, and stuff that is, that is probably there, but it's difficult to get out of the ground. So you've got P1, P2, and P3. The last update of reserves and resources from Renogen came out in March 2019. And we were pretty damn good. The market is now waiting for the latest updates. And I think it's that update regarding the quantum of methane and helium, which is sitting under the free state, which could really excite the market. And that's the underlying story that I've been commenting on and alluding to for the last month or two. And that's one of the reasons why the share price of Renogen is running. And once that news starts to, uh, to, uh, to emanate into the marketplace, I think the market will take a much different view to Renogen because you'll then be able to physically value what is in the ground using the normal mining, DCFs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the exciting part, which I think will flow into 2022 and hopefully keep Renogen share price um, a little bit bubbly. It's, a, it's too bubbly for my liking currently, but the underlying narrative remains quite positive. If these reserve numbers come out, as I expect, um, you know, to be a, a healthy increase on the March 2019 number. Fascinating. I'm going to try and avoid any, you know, comparatives to heliums, helium balloons rising and, and share prices rising and all that. That would just be ridiculous. What I want to do, though, um, Anthony, now is just pivot away a little bit from talking about the, these stocks specifically and just your sector in general. Um, and about the, the ratings um, that small and mid cap stocks attract on the JSE. I mean, that's where your expertise obviously lies is is identifying where things are undervalued and where there are opportunities in these in these sort of stocks. But something we've noticed a lot, and it kind of alludes also to what we were talking about a little bit in some respect about delistings uh, in some way, is that a lot of companies on the JSE um, are that I mean, they just don't get the the rating that they deserve. Okay, and the, the I guess the question is two parts. The first part is why is that? Why why is it that the, um, small and mid cap stocks on the JSE do often 
seem to trade at just such ridiculously low valuations. And it takes, uh, you know, a buyout to unlock that type of value. Um, and secondly, you know, a lot of these companies are South African businesses that are seeking to list to raise capital are now starting to do it on alternative exchanges outside of South Africa. I mean, one that springs to mind is, is Karoo with five O's on the end. That was the business that was formerly CarTrack and they've gone and listed in the US. And that's just one of many examples. And these companies are doing that to try and attract a, a higher rating that they can get on foreign markets as opposed to what they get on the JSE. What do you think could be done about that? Is there, is there a solution to that problem for the JSE? Garth, that's a great question. You know, the, the benefits of, of covering the, the same sector as I have the best part of 27 years is you've been through a number of cycles, which perhaps many of the listeners to this podcast uh, will, will not have gone through. Um, and when I, first, when I first started covering small caps in this country in 1996, having first started in London in, in, uh, in the early 90s. You know, the average PEs of small to mid-cap companies, it might surprise many uh, who listen to this, were in the high teens. Uh, a PE of 16, 17, and 18 for a small cap in this country was not uncommon. Yeah. And then as the years have gone on and the lack of interest uh, has pervaded into the JSC as the rise of the, what I call the mega caps and the desire uh, to actually externalize your money, uh, has occurred with the underlying denigration of the economy. So we've seen the rand hedges uh, come to the fore and the, and the fact that many funds now will only invest in the, in the larger cap stocks because of liquidity and the desire by investors to externalize money. Many of the smaller to mid cap stocks, you know, who are domestically focused have been pushed by the wayside and a number of funds focusing on investing in the domestic small to mid caps have also plunged. You know, way back in the day, I could rattle off a dozen plus uh, unit trusts who are operating in the sector today, but on a, you, you have a handful. Uh, right. It's a private client market and the boutique hedge funds uh, that have taken on that mantle. So I was I was teasing uh, somebody uh, a couple of weeks ago that you know back in the heyday uh, when I was a, when I was a lighty, you know an eight, eight an eighteen PE was not uncommon. Uh, then an eighteen became a nine, and then a nine became a three. So it's halved and halved again. Yeah, uh, you could have picked up great companies during the crash of COVID. Uh, 2020 at P's of twos, threes, and fours. Yes, they've recovered very sharply, but in many cases, they're still on five, six, seven, and eight. And I call that the new normal. Uh, the new normal for these is for, for these smaller companies is one, a lack of liquidity, two, a lack of uh, of interest, three, a lack of coverage, and uh, lastly, you know, many people physically don't want to own domestic assets. They want their money to be working either offshore or in larger assets where there's an, an ability to trade and or uh, have, a, have, have, a, have a liquidity option. So many of these companies have fallen by the wayside, which is why we've seen private equity or all the founders of the families come in and delist these companies. Mm. And that, sadly, is going to be a trend that uh, is going to go on. I wrote uh, in, in a Financial Mail article, uh, which has been published this week, that uh, in 1994, there were over 800 companies listed on the JSE. I think as of last week, there were 330 roughly, showing you how, how far the number of listings of the JSE has actually fallen. And there's very little new listings because with evaluations being so low, what is the incentive for a privately listed company to actually list their company on the JSE when the, re when the regulatory framework and the hoops you have to jump through to actually get your listing means that you might not even get the valuation that you want because the underlying universe you are, you are being compared against is so lowly traded. 
That's why private equity companies are coming in and offering decent valuations to buy these companies up because they take a much, much longer time horizon in regarding their investment. Yeah. So they're happy to pay nines, tens, elevens, and twelves, whereas a market only wants things to come in at six, sevens, and eights. So why would you, as a private, as a private individual in this country, or even an entrepreneur, wants to list in the JSE when you could probably sell your business should you wish to to a rival and or private equity company? And I don't see that changing anytime soon until there's much wider interest in the small to mid cap space. And I'll give you one area which I think could help. Um, we have tax-free savings schemes in this country, TFSA. Yeah. We have exactly the same thing in the UK but under the, the SIP program, the yes. self-invested pension plans. Yep. In this country, uh, you can invest 36,000 grand a year in anything that you choose. Um, wouldn't it be a fantastic idea if the government, Treasury, the JSC, the Reserve Bank, and all regulatory bodies were to say, let's just launch a product that is tax-free, but you can only invest in domestic South African small to mid-caps to support domestic growth, domestic enterprise, and domestic revenue and profits. And as such, anything below a certain threshold, let's pick a number, 5 billion rand, would attract uh, would attract inflows. I think something like that needs to be launched to uh, perhaps draw more interest uh, into that small to mid-cap space. And that will probably be driven by the, by the retail market, because of the institutional market, sadly, there is still a significant interest. But again, if you're a very large institution managing several hundred billion rand, for you to get involved in a small to mid cap, you'd have to buy the entire company just to move a needle in your portfolio. Yeah. And liquidity wouldn't allow you to get in or get out. Mm. So sadly, you know, the consolidation of, of asset managers in this country has seen them not avoiding, but being unable to play in the small to mid cap space to a certain degree, purely because of liquidity and the size of stake they need to actually move any needle in a portfolio means they just simply can't do it. So they tend to focus on what I would call the larger blue chip mid caps yeah. uh, with, a, with a, a market value of, of eight to 10 billion rand plus, which is anything below 10 billion tends to fall into what I would call the boutique hedge fund managers, the private client or the individual wealth manager mandate. The larger institutions just aren't getting involved. Um, do I see things changing? Yes, there are moves afoot by the JSE uh, and others to try and uh, bring more innovation into the small to mid-cap space, but I think it will take some time. Okay. Well, at least it's encouraging to hear that there's some moves afoot. Um, on that note, though, you, your universe is shrinking, as you've alluded to. And I asked you this question last year, but I'm going to ask it again. Um, given that the universe is shrinking, do you find there's still plenty of work, enough work for you to do within the JSE space? Or have you begun to look offshore for other ideas to complement what you're doing uh, locally in South Africa? Uh, again, a great question. Um, I've been in this country now since May 96. I came here from the UK, having worked uh, in the London Stock Exchange, analyzing emerging market companies for Credit Lyonnais. And uh, I, I've made this country my home. And as you know, I absolutely adore it here and I have no plans to leave. Yeah. So one would assume that, you know, given uh, uh, my career has many more years to go, hopefully, says me knocking on wood, <laughs> um, but uh, a, 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 a denuding JSC might be a, a hindrance to my uh, independent works and my and my and my ability to put food on my table. The answer is no. Uh, I continue to find on a constant basis um, ideas, uh, opportunities to make money uh, for my clients, and opportunities to potentially look for innovative new ideas. And again, I like to use direct examples. So even though the market may be contracting, 
Special situations continue to pan out. What has really happened in the last five years in this domestic marketplace, which has been a significant benefit to me as an individual? And this is where being an old dinosaur potentially plays to my favor. Um, many of our brokers in this country have given up covering small to mid caps because it simply didn't pay. Uh, the liquidity wasn't there. And to pay a team of highly, highly, uh, of, of very expensive analysts to cover a handful of small to mid caps certainly didn't cover their cost. So many of the larger brokers, Deutsche Bank, Merrill Lynch, Investec, you know, you name it, have given up coverage. Right. But the interest is still out there in the marketplace. What's also happened in the last five years because of the scandals in this country is that King Code governance and JC regulation has improved. And as such, listed companies are far more reluctant to actually engage with the new younger analysts because of the rules and regulations that are now pervasive pervasive in the uh, in the stock market system. So if you're an old dinosaur like me, but, but I've got long-term legacy relationships going back 20 or 30 years, and you've either listed companies or you've grown up with them from when they were little acorns to now, to now mighty oaks, um, they know who you are. They trust you. They want to deal with you. And right. again, not, not to sound uh, uh, arrogant, but if you have a, trade, a track record and a reputation, it makes things slightly easier to get information from companies. I'm not saying anything is privileged, but you have an ability to open a door and to make a phone call, which is not easy these days for, for, for many newer analysts. So right. in my case, um, I'm finding on a constant basis, um, narrative change, sentiment change, and special situations like York Timbers, like Novus, like mm. Sapcap, like Metrophile, like Carp Agri, like Invicta, Renogen, I could rattle them off, who actually have changing stories, which I have the ability to tap into because of the longevity and relationships which I have in this marketplace. So the answer is, even if the market is shrinking, I continue to find lots to do and keep very, very busy. Okay, well, that's excellent to hear. Now, there's something I've been wanting to ask you about, and this is completely not related to the markets. And this is how we're going to wrap up our discussion. But Anybody who follows you on Twitter will have seen your new toy, your uh, custom-built Land Rover Defender 110. And I mean, I've followed the story right from, I think what I would like to say is it's incubation uh, in, in, in terms of an idea in your head. I seem to recall some time back, you took a photograph of, of one of these Land Rovers outside the gym there in Seapoint in Cape Town. And you let, you made a comment along something along the lines, how you, how impressed you were by this thing. And I, I got the sense that that was the point when the seed was planted. And ever since then, I've followed the story of this Land Rover and how it's been built. So tell us, please, about your new toy, because I, I absolutely love it. And anyone who, who's not following you on Twitter should follow you and go and have a look at your Twitter feed in the history, because there they will see the pictures of this absolutely beautiful machine. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's always a great backstory to, uh, to my life, as I think I alluded to last time. Uh, I'm a farmer's son. My father still she uh, farms sheep in Wales. My grandfather was a farmer in a small holding in, in South Wales. And farmers being farmers, they want utility vehicles. And I can fondly remember uh, as a young child in my, uh, you know, in my, in my, in my, in being five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, being driven around the farm in, by my grandfather in his, uh, in his old Land Rover. Uh, my dad has one at the farm. And even though I'm sitting here, you know, in, uh, in central Cape Town, uh, living in, in suburbia, um, I actually don't. I actually don't do much driving these days because I've been working from home 
for the best part of 10 years. So COVID came, came and passed me by because I've always worked from home. And, you know, over the years working in, in finance, you know, I've had a number of nice cars. But you reach a point in life when you, when you start thinking, what is important in life? You know, you look back on your, on, your, on, your, on your past and where you want your future to be defined. And I didn't want my future to be one where I had this expensive German automotive uh, product sitting in my basement here gathering dust because I didn't drive it. And nostalgia in everyone's life is a very important part, particularly when you get older. And, and this seed was planted, Garth, 10 years ago. <laughs> when for one birthday, I thought, you know what, I actually want this project to actually start to develop. But I either didn't find a vehicle, I didn't have the time, I either didn't have the money, uh, and it just fell by the wayside. And every birthday, which is the 28th of October, um, it's resurrected itself. So last year, I thought it has to happen. Um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ironic uh, turn, uh, my dear mother passed away nearly four years ago. And she left me a sum of money, an, inherit an inheritance. Uh, a year after my mother passed away, my dear grandmother passed away. And she also, she also left me an inheritance. And I was very close uh, to both of those women. They were a great influence on my life and supported who I am as a person today. And I thought, what a, what a, what a nice way to remember them by taking part of that legacy and actually doing something that I wanted to do uh, for 10 years, which is actually having a, a, a vehicle from my childhood to drive around every day. And that's the, the, how the, the, the embryonic idea of his defender came around. And I'm a great believer in fate. And in May this year, I contacted a conversion house in Durban. And they said, Anthony, we can only help you in July because we only take on a handful of projects a year. But I didn't have a vehicle. And right. a, a cold, dark night in Cape Town, I was trolling Auto Trader. And lo and behold, I found this, this 1993 Defender 110 pickup, very low kilometers, owned by a gentleman in Pretoria who was selling uh, part of his holdings because he just didn't use the vehicle anymore. So that's 60,000 Ks in the clock, which is nothing yeah. for a 1993 Defender uh, 110. So I bought it with some of my uh, inheritance, shipped it off to Durban, and the last five months has been converted to exactly what I wanted, which is a, a comfortable, everyday driving a machine, but with a, a, a tilt to the heritage of the Land Rover name and a tilt to my farming uh, background. So I now drive this thing around. It's absolutely vast. Uh, I, I smile every time I climb into the damn thing because it's so big. Uh, I filled up the car the weekend with diesel and I had to take out a second mortgage to pay for it. But you know what? The smile it puts in my face and the, and the, and the feelings of nostalgia and warmth it brings back from my childhood is worth every single penny uh, that I was thankfully uh, given by my uh, dear grandmother and mother. And that's the, the evolution of this vehicle. It's the only car that I have. Uh, I'll never sell it. And uh, it's something that is very personal to me. And it, it might be a, a, a strange thing to drive around Cape Town, but it's not a vehicle. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's who I am. It's nostalgia. And there isn't a price on that. Yeah, well, that's absolutely fantastic to hear the story around that. And it's a beautiful vehicle. So as I said, listeners, go and have a look at uh, Anthony's Twitter timeline, and there's plenty of photographs on it of it there. And if you happen to be in Cape Town and you you live in the Sea Point, uh, Green Point, that kind of area, and you see uh, a very well-chiseled guy with a, a Jack Russell on his lap and a big, beautiful green Land Rover driving around, give him a wave. That's Anthony Clark. And I'm pretty sure that that's the only one like that in South Africa now, would you say, Anthony? 
Yeah, um, I've been quite lucky. This is a, a, a custom job. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a special vehicle, but I, I didn't change too much. Mm. Uh, I've just, uh, I've just uh, made it more fit for purpose for, for 2021, 2022. But uh, yeah, I call it the green beast because uh, uh, it is. And, uh, and uh, it's sitting at downstairs. It doesn't go that, it doesn't go that far because I still don't go that, uh, don't do much driving. Uh, me and the dog are sitting here in my home office working away. Uh, talking to you and it might pop out to Jim later. Otherwise, as I said, it was it was bought for a reason, uh, for remembrance and nostalgia. And it'll stay that way until uh, the day that it perhaps is used, a bit like the Duke of Edinburgh to take my coffee into my grave. <laughs> well, congratulations. It's a beautiful, beautiful machine. And thanks so much again, Anthony, for joining me uh, on this podcast. I've absolutely loved talking to you for the last 40 odd minutes. Um, you mentioned that your birthday is on the 28th of October. And just interestingly, that's the day that we are going to be uh, airing this podcast for the first time. So I'm going to say to you, happy birthday, although it's obviously before your birthday right now, but on the day that the listeners will be listening to this, it will be the 28th of October. And that would, as you said, will be your 54th birthday. So happy birthday. Um, last question. How can listeners uh, follow you if they want to follow your work? Obviously you're on Twitter, um, which is at small talk daily research. Are there any other ways that you'd like to put your name out there that the listeners can follow you? As it stands right now, you know, my work is, is pretty bespoke and I've had a significant amount of interest from uh, the private client markets uh, for my content. But sadly, uh, because of the nature of, of, of my supporters, uh, it's bespoke. But I do put a lot on my social media page, which, as you mentioned, is at Small Talk Daily. In 2022, I will be launching a website. Okay. Uh, I actually own the website domain smalltalkdaily.co.za. It's currently not being used. Okay. But I am in discussions right now to launch a website at some point next year, which will enable the listeners and any member of the investing public who has an interest in small to mid caps uh, to actually see my work and my vast back catalogue uh, of several thousand articles. And I think that's something I'll be working on for the next few months. And uh, that'll be my new project for next year. So my project this year uh, was to continue to, uh, to work uh, for my underlying clients. Uh, my Defender 110, and next year it'll be the website. So if we speak again, hopefully we can chat about uh, smalltalkdaily.co.za, and uh, there'll be lots on there to see. It'll be, it, I intend to have that uh, website to look like the Instagram of, uh, of Small Talk. It'll be something that'll be sticky with constant updated uh, information during the course of a day. So I would say watch this space and uh, thank you for your warm birthday wishes. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well, certainly I'd love to interview you again when, when that website is up and running and give it a plug for you because I've no doubt that will be very, very popular. That's the end of our time, Anthony. So thanks again for joining me. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you as I knew it would be. It's been the first uh, interview, the first returning guest of Talking With Traders that's come on the show. Um, and I'm very grateful for all the information that you've shared with me today. And once again, happy birthday and have a good day and a good year ahead. Thanks very much. Thanks, Goff. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.